The preaching of God's Word then is found in James chapter 3, and there at verse 17. And here we have before us this verse that sets forth several properties of wisdom, of biblical wisdom. And so we've dealt with various aspects thus far of wisdom, and today we look particularly at one such property first listed in this verse. So here then the verse, James chapter 3 and verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. As an excellent teacher, doubtlessly as guided and inspired of the Holy Spirit, James helps us see what wisdom is by first showing us what it is not. It's not that which leads to bitter envying and strife. That would be earthly, sensual, and devilish, as we've seen. But in saying what it's not, he now sets forth what it is. And notice that he begins with this as it describes biblical, heavenly wisdom, divine wisdom. That's what he means when he says wisdom that is from above, that comes down from above. Just as we read in James 1, that God is the one who gives every good and perfect gift. It cometh from above. So wisdom is such a gift. But notice what he says. This wisdom is first pure. This word pure is a word that has to do with holiness. And so the word is that which appears in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3 when it speaks of the one who has this hope, listen to the language, purifies himself even as he, that is, as Christ Jesus, is pure. And in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 2, it speaks of one's chaste, conversation, meaning pure conduct. And so when it speaks here of wisdom that is pure, surely it does mean that which is unmixed by other things. But fundamentally, what James is getting at is the first and even we can say the primary property of biblical or divine or heavenly wisdom is that it is holy. It is pure. It is not mixed with the corruptions of this world. It's not mixed with the uh, depravity of sin. It is that which comes from God, who is himself pure, and so it then must be pure as well. You can think of it as waters proceeding from a fountain. It has the same character in that sense. And so, as James will say elsewhere, you know, there's a mouth that we have. In the same chapter, he speaks then of a fountain. Doth a fountain, verse 11, send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Of course, the answer is no, because what is there in the source will flow from it. And if it's God-sent wisdom, it will have the various characteristics that relate to God, which, of course, includes His holiness. And so before us, James is setting this which is most needed. When we think of biblical wisdom, 
There's much to consider, and indeed he has many more things to say about it. But notice how he says that that which is from above is first pure. It's primarily, as it were, pure. Not only in the sense of that's all that it is, but it has this as a preeminent feature. That biblical wisdom, divine wisdom, is holy. This helps us because when we think of wisdom, we rightly understand that it's something about teaching us how to live, how to navigate difficult circumstances, how to face adversity, how to face affliction, how to face temptation, and how to be guided through it. But what can subtly come into our minds as we get to the pragmatic approach of living is instead of thinking of purity in addressing those circumstances, we merely think of how it is we're going to get through it. And so we subtly shift from holiness guiding us unto the pragmatic approach of surviving, unto the pragmatic approach of navigating, unto the pragmatic approach of retaining our health, retaining our wealth, retaining our jobs, retaining all of those things. And what happens is those secondary at best concerns actually then direct us more than the primary concern. You can see the relationship of this idea to when Christ is addressing his disciples. And he says to his disciples, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's to direct you. That's to be your guide. That's your target after which you're following and pursuing. And he says, As you do this, all these things shall be added unto you. What's he getting at? He's addressing a fundamental flaw in our remaining sin. That we start to think about, well, how do I navigate these things in such a way as to retain food and drink and friends and family, popularity and peace and other such things? Now, of course, none of those things are in themselves wrong. But the problem is, they can take to themselves a position that then dictates to us their message, as it were. So, for instance, here's the point. If you think to yourselves, my main goal is to maintain this friendship. If that really becomes your main goal, you're going to put everything else second to it, which will include, in the end, God's Word. I'm willing to compromise God's Word in order to obtain or maintain this relationship. That can be with friends, it can be with classmates, it can be with family, and so on. But what James helps us to see is, if we're going to assess whether one is wise, or whether a course is wise, or whether this is wisdom or not, here's the first thing we look for. Is it marked out by biblical holiness? Does it have that clear property of being guided and governed by the holy God whom we claim to serve? So as we think about this, consider two things. Firstly, the pure content of biblical wisdom. And secondly, the pure motive of biblical wisdom, which will help us to see this first property namely purity. So firstly, then, the pure content of biblical wisdom. 
Biblical wisdom is sent by God. It's given, provided, gifted by God. It's true that there are means we employ and make use of to gain and to mature in our wisdom. Use them, we're looking to God to give them to us. So we sit down with the Bible before us in difficult circumstances, and we feel the pressures upon us, and we're searching the Scriptures. There's the means. But as we're searching the Scriptures, what are we doing? But sending up prayers. Lord, send light. Give help. Give understanding. Give me help and assistance as I seek to discern your guidance. And so, even as we employ the means, we're using the means God has given, and we seek Him to bless His Word to us. All biblical wisdom is sent by God in the way that He has determined to send it. In such truth, this then means that God, when He sends wisdom, sanctifies our understanding. He transforms our understanding so that our thoughts and understanding come into conformity with God's Word. So remember Joshua in the midst of tremendous difficulties. And isn't it an interesting excuse that we often use, I don't have time. My schedule is too busy. I've got a lot going on. You know, as life carries on, life gets busier. We think when we're young, you know, well, when I get to become an adult, then I'll be able to do all of these things, only to find out that so soon as you hit upon the very first beginnings of adulthood, more of your time's taken up. And you think, well, when I get past this phase, I'll have more. No, it just keeps on getting tighter and more difficult. And as we grow, there's more claims upon us. If we have a spouse, if we have children, if we, as we join a church, we have all these relationships that are uh, calling for our attention. And we start to say, well, I don't have time for some of these other things. And unfortunately, one of the things we tend to put into that category is meditation upon God's Word. Well, brethren, think of this for a moment. Joshua, whatever else he was, was the civil leader of a nation. All that goes into that is what was thrust upon him. So right now, the world is fixated upon what's transpiring in the United Kingdom, the death of the queen and the appointment of the king and all of these things. And whatever the royalty means or doesn't mean, all of us know that the life of the royals in the United Kingdom today, if they're anything, they're busy. They have all of these activities, demands upon their times. And though they have tremendous wealth, if you look at a day in the life of a royal, you come to find out their days are tremendously busy. I imagine it's easy for them to say, I don't have time for such things. I don't have time to meditate upon God's Word. Brethren, the reality is, when we say we don't have time, what we mean is, we have other priorities for which we're making time. That's what we mean. We're making time for something else. When we say we don't have time to meditate upon God's Word, what we back up and we start to think about it, what we're really saying is, I've made time for other things that demand my attention, and therefore I don't have leftover time for the Word of God. When we do that, 
we'll have no ability to see our wisdom develop. Because when God gives us wisdom, He does so by the instruction He provides in His Word. Joshua, how was he to be a wise man? He was to be diligent to meditate upon the Word of God, both day and night. David, in all of his actions as king, what was he to be doing? Meditating upon the Word of God. The blessed man, Psalm 1, what is it that cultivates in him such wisdom? He meditates upon the law of God both day and night. Again and again, this is emphasized in the Scriptures. Christ Himself, incarnate wisdom, yet as incarnate, He made use of means as well, since He was truly and fully human. You remember on one occasion when His disciples wondered at Him, and He said, I have meat that you don't know of. He speaks of the meat which is to do the will of His Father which is in heaven. He meditated upon God's Word. Well, this pure content addresses what is naturally impure in us. Naturally, by virtue of sin, our understanding, and thus our, ju- thus our judgment, is corrupted. We may be able because of various natural gifts or talents or wherewithal in general, we may be able to navigate certain scenarios. All of us know those gifted salespeople who are able to work through difficulties and in the end sell the item to perhaps even one who was unwilling at first to purchase. We know of gifted politicians who are able to navigate compromises of tremendous weight and so on. But brethren, The point is not one of natural talent. The point that we consider is the natural content that's bound up in our heart. What's natural to us as those who are fallen in Adam is not God-honoring. It's not God-focused. It's self-focused. It's focused on temporal ends. It goes back to what James has said about the wisdom that descends not from above. It's earthly. Its realm is here. It's sensual. That is, it focuses on what's merely soul desires of our carnal selves. It's devilish. This is what's natural to us. So if ever we're to have pure wisdom, you understand, it won't come by merely improving your natural gifts. It will only come as God provides it to us. Here's the point. Pure wisdom, divinely given wisdom, is alien to us. It's foreign to us. It's as foreign to us as an ocean of water in the middle of the desert. They're opposites in many ways. They're not common. They aren't something that's easily found. However far down you dig in the desert, you're not going to unearth an undiscovered ocean. However far down you dig in your heart, you're not going to discover pure wisdom. Pure wisdom is given by God. God is both pure and He purifies. And so this is what makes sense of those many petitions in Psalm 119. Open my eyes. Enlighten my mind. 
teach me, guide me, direct me. It's all looking outside of ourselves. Now understand this for a moment. This doesn't mean that there's not what we might call a shadow form of wisdom in the world. There are people tremendously gifted in working through complicated circumstances and scenarios. And they may more or less benefit societies as politicians or as generals in armies or other such, such positions as well. But fundamental to their goal is not that which is holy. It might be self-preservation. It might be preservation of natural belongings and other such things. And so we're not denying that there's not a form, a type of ability to navigate difficulties by others who are in their sins. What we're denying is that there's a holy understanding, that there's a holy desire. They aren't being governed by God's Word. Pure wisdom, holy wisdom, is something that comes to us by God, ministering to us through His Word. So here's something that we must come to face to face with ourselves. When you look in the mirror, and I look in the mirror, you aren't looking at the source of wisdom. You're looking at the need for wisdom. We need to deal with that. The world is constant in saying the opposite. The world is constant in saying, follow your thoughts. Well, what do you think? How do you feel? What is your desire? And it's pitching us on the wrong source. We ought not to ask, what is my heart's desire? We ought not to ask, well, what are my thoughts? We ought to ask, what is it that God teaches? What is it that God is commanding? What is it that God directs us to consider? Because that's holy wisdom. He purifies our thoughts. He instructs us with reference to his word. It's intriguing, isn't it? Listen how Christ prays it in John chapter 17. When he's praying to his father, he says, sanctify them. And how does he say it? Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. How are his people going to be sanctified? Well, of course it's going to be by God's grace. We don't deny that. That prayer doesn't deny it. It's acknowledging it. But the means that God uses to give purity of understanding and wisdom and desires as well is by the truth of the Word. It's Word-centered. It's Word-saturated. The Word of God is the content. It's that means that provides us the content purity. So what this means is when we sit back and we say, I'm lacking wisdom, we ought to think, well, what do I mean by that? It's not just I'm lacking the knowledge and the wherewithal to get around these difficulties, but I'm lacking that knowledge of what's holy. I'm lacking the knowledge of how I may, in a holy way, navigate these things. And the only way that you or I can obtain that is as God provides us that instruction by His Word. So pure content, it instructs our understanding. How am I to think about this issue at work? How am I to think about this issue in my family? How am I to think about what's going on in the nation? 
Well, we start by thinking about it according to the holy content of God's Word. That's where we get our true north. It's from the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Because that's the only holy means whereby God communicates to us this purity of understanding. So, pure content. Secondly, then, pure motive. God sent wisdom not only sanctifies our understanding to discern what's right and wrong, how to go about these things, but God sent wisdom sanctifies our motives in the exercise of wisdom as well. What do we mean by this? Well, it's easy for us, perhaps, to think that if I have the right content, then I'll have the right motive. But the problem, of course, is one can have the right content and with the wrong motive, abuse that content. They may speak the right thing, but in not speaking it for the right purpose, they're actually abusing what God has given them. So one can use the knowledge of the Scriptures for selfish gain. One can think, I'm going to use this so I become one who's highly esteemed by others. Remember the Pharisees who loved to make long prayers to be heard of men? Think of that expression. Why were they praying? To be heard of men. Praying. Is it wise or unwise? Is it right or wrong? All of us would say prayer is good. It's right. It ought to be done. Indeed, it must be done. But does that mean every time someone's engaged in something called prayer that they're doing it for the right reason? And the answer, of course, is no. The Pharisees many times were engaged in what would have sounded as pious prayer. And yet, because their heart motive was not for the glory of God and the advance of His kingdom, but rather for their own esteem in the eyes of others, their motives were impure. Well, wisdom, which is fundamentally about doing things, it's fundamentally about understanding unto action, or for that moment, or for that matter, understanding unto inaction, not doing something we ought not to do. When it is that our motives are off, the thing is corrupted. Naturally, our wisdom, even when it's biblically instructed, it seeks out profane and corrupt goals. And so we speak about the Scriptures to impress other people. We start to do certain habits and practices in order to speak of, up of ourselves. We contend with others, not for the sake of standing for the glory of God, not for the sake of helping out someone in error, but rather that we can win the debate. These kinds of motives are not holy. Think of the very essence of holiness. It has to do, as we're sanctified, being set apart to God. And holy wisdom is always targeting the glory of God. That's pure wisdom. So when I'm thinking about how do I shepherd my children, I'm not thinking about how do I make my house easy. I'm not thinking about how do I make it so that they're focused on me. I'm thinking about how do I shepherd them to God's glory. Now that doesn't mean I'm not thinking about how do I order my house well. 
how do I make sure they understand these things and that it's an ordered house that honors the Lord and so on? What it means is that I'm doing those things not because it makes my life easy, not because in the end they'll rise up and call me blessed, though that be a fruit of these things. The reason that I'm ordering the house well is for the sake of honoring the Lord, directing them to God. Why do we teach others to memorize Scripture? Well, it's not just so that they memorize Scripture. It's so that it directs them to the Lord. Why do we contend against error? It's not so that we can be considered the bastion of orthodoxy. It's so that we would stand for the truth of God and that by His grace we may be instruments to see others directed to God. That's our desire. Why do we come to church? Well, our motive is not so that we can come here and pat ourselves on the back and go home and say, look, we went to church. It's so that we seek the glory of God. The motive is essential in the activity of wisdom. God-sent wisdom seeks pure, that is, holy ends. It seeks the glory of God. A businessman, if a holy man will not prioritize his financial gain above the glory of God. So there are businesses that reason this way, right? Like, it's easy. If I open my store on the Sabbath day, I can make more money. Arguably, perhaps one can make that claim. And then it becomes very easy, doesn't it, to start justifying, if I make more money, I can give more to the church, If I make more money, I can assist other people. If I make more, and we have all of these arguments, but here's the fundamental flaw. The real reason for opening on the Sabbath day is not to serve the Lord, it's to fill the pocket, it's to make the profits go up. You can think of it this way like, okay, I'm going to take a trip. And so, well, If I go to church, I can leave after church and I can make five hours down the road and so on. And I can turn on the radio or I can turn on a sermon or whatever else and listen to these things. We can talk about all these things and so on. But the fundamental question is not, well, can you make it that way? But what's the motive? Is the motive to set apart the Lord's day and to seek the Lord? Or is it to make a little progress on a trip? You see, these are different things. And so the point is this. God-sent wisdom has as its motive not our gain, not our advance, not our ease, not our advantage, none of those things. God-sent wisdom preeminently seeks the glory and praise of God. You see it, don't you, in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? There they are. Bow down to the image. We're not going to bow down to the image. And so one of the fundamental motives is pressed. If you don't bow down you're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. What's the motive? Life. It's to continue living without pain. And the three say, listen, God's able to deliver us. God will deliver us. But even if He doesn't, we're not going to bow down. Why? Because their motive was God's glory and honor. That governed them. It's interesting It says earlier that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were wise men, like Daniel, a wise man. 
They were wise in all of the learning and so on. They were able to learn and so forth. But biblically, they were wise. Because not only were they taught the content of biblical wisdom, but their hearts were ordered to the right motive of seeking the glory of God. Listen again to what Christ says. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. There's a goal, there's a motive, there's a pursuit. And biblical wisdom is ever pure in seeking God's glory, seeking His advance. There are decisions that biblically wise men will make that financial advisors will look at and say, that's disastrous. What you've done there is stupid. It's foolish. It's not the best use of your finances. There are decisions that biblically wise women will make that the world will say, that sets women back a hundred years. That's disastrous to the cause of women. There are decisions that men will make and children will make and others will make who are biblically wise that everyone else will say, what you're doing is foolish. However, the world judges that way because their goal, their purpose, their motive is different than the pure motive, the holy motive of the Christian. The Christian's goal is fixed upon the glory of God. Well, let's turn to some application regarding this truth. Here before you is a true standard by which to test whatever is deemed wise in this world. We hear it all the time about this wise person, this wise agenda, and whatever else. Well, here's how we test it. It's not that we test it by saying, does it resolve a difficult problem facing a nation, facing a church, facing a family, facing financial circumstances, whatever else. That's not the mark of wisdom. It's not that we ask, did it defeat an enemy? Those aren't the true standards by which we test if something is wise. We don't just say, well, it must be wise because it worked. Nor do we say it isn't wise because it didn't work. Because the first property of wisdom is not, here is God-sent wisdom. It gets you out of difficulties. That's not it. The first property of wisdom is that it's holy. So we test true wisdom not by its ancient pedigree, but by its conformity to the Word of God. Is it holy in its content? Does it motivate a holy purpose? That's how we judge it. So we're sitting back and saying, what's the wise course? It actually helps us. It helps us in the midst of this whole storm that's around us saying, I don't know what to do. We come back to the Word of God. We say, what's the holy instruction of God's Word? Now, that holy path may be in the midst of great difficulties. And people will look at us and say, listen, that's not the way forward. Do you remember the character in Pilgrim's Progress? Worldly wise men? A wise man, but only in a worldly way. He looked at the advantage of the world, and that's how he navigated difficulties. But the heavenly wise man looks to the Word of God And that's how he guides and is directed 
in difficulties. So when we're testing whether a course is wise, whether counsel is wise, whether a, a political scheme is wise, we don't say, will that fix the problem? We ask, does it conform to God's word? This is the difficulty of faith, isn't it? Because sight will see, if I submit to God's word, that's going to lead me in difficult paths. But notice, it doesn't say that the wisdom that is from above is first easy, or the wisdom that is from above is first the pleasant way. It says it's pure. And brethren, this actually raises our dignity that we aren't as the beasts of the world who only respond to the various things around them and react. We're actually governed by the holy guidance of God. We walk as those who are heavenly minded. We walk as those who have been redeemed by God Himself by the blood of Christ which is pure from our impurities and who are inhabited by the Holy Spirit which is pure and who causes us to walk in that way. So we can test that which is often considered wise in this world. Next time you're in a difficulty, take this as a standard. Am I thinking through the difficulty in a way that is pure? Well, secondly, by way of application, Divine instruction given us is meant to instruct us as a disciple. Here's the point. Instruction's never given us just to inflate our brain. It's not given us just to inflate our understanding. It's given us to direct us as a follower of Christ. It's Christ who is here presenting His Word to us. Yes, of course, it's by James, of course, as we well know. But notice James chapter 1, verse 1, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember this. It's not just the wise adage of ancient wisdom. It is the divine wisdom of our divine Savior who's instructing us. He's teaching us to guide us. He's wanting you and me to walk in the way of this pure wisdom, which then orients us not to some abstract notion of wisdom, but unto the person of wisdom. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom is wisdom perfectly so, beautifully so. Is it not such in Christ that we find when He's wisely working through things that we say, look, It's not just that he knows how to answer the Pharisees or the Sadducees or whoever else, but he always does so with perfection of holiness. Well, what we see in Christ is being cultivated in Christ's people. All such growth in conformity to our Lord is gained as God gives it. It's given by God and blessed to us by God. Well, how is it then that Christ cultivates us to be wise and causes us to grow in this? Well, one thing He does is He presents it to us by instruction. 
But of course, we are then to ask him for the wisdom he holds forth. We saw that as we read in James chapter 1, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let's open this up a little bit, that by God's grace you and I may indeed put the pursuit on to growing in wisdom. How is it that we cultivate this wisdom? We ask of God, but we prayerfully meditate upon His Word. We saw that in Joshua 1, we see it in Psalm 1, we see it in Christ, we see it in Paul. What does Paul say to Timothy but to meditate upon these things, including the Word of God? And so we're to take up God's Word and meditate on it. Have you ever seen a child with something they like to eat? Perhaps it's a popsicle or a candy. They don't just take one lick and say, that's sufficient, I'll set it aside. They keep it in their mouth. If there's a bowl of candies out, what do they do? They fill their hands with it. If they could, they'd fill their pockets with it. And as hours pass by, the parents turn around and find wrappers all over the place. Why? Because they find enjoyment in taking these things in. They have, as we say, a sweet tooth. The Christian has something that we could say of a holy tooth. They love God's Word. The Christian wants to take in God's Word. It's not sufficient just to sort of light upon a verse and say, that's good, I'll put it away. They love to take it in. I was told just recently of a young man in a different congregation who drives two hours every Lord's Day, two hours every midweek, and two hours back as well. And as he's in conversation, it's much about the Lord's Word And if he's found alone, he has his Bible out and he's meditating upon the Word. Now he's single and there are other circumstances and so on, but there's a model there. There's something of an insight to Christianity. There's a love for God's Word that takes it in. Brethren, if we're to grow, it'll be as we take it in. How does a plant grow? It doesn't grow by just spritzing it once with some sort of water sprayer. It has to soak and take in and be nourished by the soil. It has to be planted in that good condition. And our soul, if to grow in biblical wisdom, pure wisdom, must be planted in God's Word, meditating upon His Word. It's unfortunate that there's the case to be made that more who profess to be Christians in actual reality meditate more on the ways of the world than they do on the ways of God. Now, this may be in some passive way, but here's what we mean. They spend their time in God's Word, and they have the television on for, let's just be super conservative, an hour a day. Now, unless what's on the television is some lecture series or sermon series or something else, the majority of it's going to be at least gentle worldliness before them. So an hour a day on the super conservative side of the majority of people in the world versus 10 minutes a day in God's Word. And then you accentuate that with the advent of technology and the smartphone and the way to just sort of scroll through things mindlessly and you start to realize it's far more. The conversations that are had are cultivating worldly ways. Complaints and sort of the water cooler talk, as it's called, and 
in the school hallways. How often is it so that we come home from our places of employment and say, oh, the conversations we had this day of the Lord were so sweet. No, we've spent our time talking about perhaps necessary things. How many times we've heard our ears have been opened to the gossips of the world and we're impacted by that. When we start to measure up what our souls are saturated by, we start to see that what dominates many times our lives is the world, whether it's actively pursued by us or passively thrust upon us. So when we say that we are to be prayerfully meditating, we mean deliberately meditating. We have to be active in seeking this out. Meditation doesn't happen by accident. It happens by deliberation. On what do we meditate? We'll start with God. We heard a brother pray, the only wise God taken from the Scriptures. We meditate upon Him who is wise. And we start to see His wise ways, His wise works. We magnify His wisdom as He orders things. And we see, look how He directs Joseph into Egypt and He raises him up and eventually brings His family down and fulfills His promise. Oh, the wisdom of God. We look at the creatures and we say, look at the wisdom of God displayed in the systems and animals and plants, the galaxies and all of these things. We wonder at it. We look at the scriptures and we marvel at the wisdom, the way which Christ lived and spoke, the activities of Paul and the other apostles. We meditate upon God and what He's provided us in His Word. And in doing so, we're being saturated by Him which, by His grace, starts to elicit from us a desire for Him. You spend time around people that are wise, and you start to want to be wise as well as God blesses. We meditate specifically upon His law. Why? Because by the law, we'll be saved? No. But as saved people, we look at the law And we say, here's the manifestation of purity. Here's the concrete elements of what it is to love the Lord our God with all of our soul, mind, and strength, as well as what it is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so we meditate upon that, which will help us in the midst of navigating things to have pure wisdom. We meditate upon God's purpose. Could you say what God's purpose is? Hopefully you can say what your purpose is, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It's not far from what God's purpose is, which is to glorify Himself and enjoy Himself forever. Because He is the highest, the greatest, the best good. Any other end other than glorifying Himself would be a sinful end. He sets the greatest end before Him, which is to magnify before all that is the glory of Himself. And when we start to meditate upon His purpose and His pursuit of that, we start to glean wisdom governing our own purpose. And as you do this, you pray, Lord, make me see the beauty of holy wisdom. Well, not only meditation, If we're to cultivate this wisdom, we also must acknowledge and confess our profane attempts at it as well. We need to come to terms 
that there have been courses we've pursued, even with the Bible upon our lips and tongues, that actually sought out vain ends, selfish ends, sinful ends. You ever been in an argument and you use a verse to vindicate yourself and put down the other? Not, mind you, to argue for truth and the glory of God, but to come out as the one who is vindicated, to put someone down in their place. That's to use a holy instrument to profane ways. So we have to confess those things. Sometimes we have to confess that not only have we had profane motives, but we've had profane content. Our lips have spoken that which is contrary to the wisdom of God. So we come and we confess, we deplore the impurity of our own sinful understandings. We condemn any victory over others or in any cause for which we've been a party. And if it's furthered our pride and inflated our ego, we say before the Lord, this was wicked. We confess it as sinful. Perhaps it is we have to go to someone and confess it as sin against them as well. And so what we're doing is we're meditating upon God and His Word and His ways, which gives us some desire, some picture, some beauty of pure wisdom. We look at the lack of it in ourselves. Well, then we must gather up the promises before us. One such before us in James chapter 1. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all liberally and upbraideth not. We gather that up before us and we say, look, God is one who gives. God is one who promises. God is one who says, if you lack it, ask it of me and I'll give it to you. And we perhaps bolster that with Christ's Word that says, if you being evil know how to give your children good things, how much more so your Father which is in heaven, that He will not withhold from you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The One who enlightens our minds, who inspired the Word, takes His Word and writes it upon our hearts and enlivens our understanding. We gather up these promises, having seen something of and gained a taste of the beauty, the glory, the desirability of this pure wisdom and deploring what wickedness has been in us and what wickedness is around us. And now we have the promises before us and we do what with them? We plead them. We ask God, here's your word. I need you to give this to me. We say, well, I have to be out of that because I'm unworthy of ever coming near to God in such a manner. You are unworthy, but here's the beauty of God's grace. He places the promise in your hand and He says, take this to me and I will keep my word. And so we pray, God, bless that Your Holy Spirit would impart unto me this wisdom. On what grounds do we seek it? On several. God has commanded it. God has instructed us to seek it. God has promised it to be provided to us. But also, Christ has died. To do what? Think of the language. He's done so that His bride would be pure and undefiled. 
This is a right that we are given because of Christ Jesus. It's not that we have to be those who are diligent to get this degree or that degree by some accredited institution, not that anything in Christianity is against that. But it's that we go to Christ by His Word and we say, give what you've promised, that I would be purified in my understanding and in my desires that I may seek you. Why? Because you've died that I might have this gift. Brethren, the great gift of purity of wisdom is a gift given to us freely because of the payment Christ has made. He's purchased this gift for you. And so it's good for us to honor our beloved husband and say, as it's your gift, give it unto me. For what reason though? For the glory of your name. May he make us indeed wise and as wise, pure unto his glory. Would you stand with me for prayer? Let us pray.